From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Several federal agencies, including Treasury and Commerce, are recovering from major cyber breaches tonight. According to the Wall Street Journal, the breach is related to last week's compromise at FireEye, and it's connected to a flaw in products from SolarWinds. The Journal reports an expert aware of the scope of the breach calls it a 10 out of 10 in severity and national security exposure. The Trump administration's 2022 budget passback for the Defense Department includes a top line of $759 billion and elimination of the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund. The budget includes $167 billion for Navy shipbuilding, breaking defense reports last year's OCO budget was $69 billion. The Indian Health Service will get 22,000 doses of the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine this week for its employees. The service says local installations will decide who gets the shots in what order. GovExec reports the IHS has 46,000 doses of the Moderna vaccine on order for when the Food and Drug Administration grants emergency use, emergency use authorization of that shot. The government's open for business this week after a continuing resolution passed Congress in time to avoid the midnight Friday deadline for appropriations to lapse. But Congress gets back to work this week with almost as much to resolve as last week. David Hawkins is editor-in-chief of the Fulcrum. David, welcome. Thanks for coming on. We got, we'll put the NDAA to rest, maybe, if President Trump uh, does not veto it and, and the overriding veto votes need to happen. One week CR... What's new, if anything, on what happens at the end of this week vis-a-vis -vis the end of last week? I don't see too much, to be honest. As we're talking uh, right now, uh, hope springs eternal that at any moment there will be um, some sort of unexpected burst of bipartisan agreement. But as we're talking right now, it looks like uh, next, this coming Friday, same as last Friday, there is no... Uh, grand deal on an omnibus to take to take spending all the way through next September. Uh, I would predict that maybe they will um, pass another CR to get them through the weekend, maybe, or into the new year. But I don't see a big omnibus happening this week. Uh, and as we're speaking now, uh, nor do I see uh, any grand deal on uh, what's hoping the big thing that's hoping to catch a ride on that omnibus which is another COVID relief package. Uh, there's talk now about um, the so-called gang of 908, which isn't, they're not 908 lawmakers. This is the gang that uh, supports a $908 billion package that they're trying to come up with a compromise in which they split their package in two. Uh, they, the, the 750 that everybody agrees on would go forward this week. The 160 that's controversial would, would be subject to a vote in which it would definitely lose. A lot of Democrats don't like that. So I don't, I, at this, as we're talking now, uh, it wouldn't surprise me um, if Congress either goes home um, over the weekend uh, with none of this done, stays into, the, into next week, or stays into next week and then goes home for a few days and then comes back, uh, which hardly ever happens. It's happened only once in my lifetime, I believe, between Christmas and New Year's. Does it make a difference in your mind that that gang of 908 deal at least is obviously and very discreetly separated from the omnibus spending bill? Anything I heard about it over the weekend indicated that those members do not want to try to tag it onto an omnibus spending bill. 
Well, they don't want to, but I think, um, and I don't, they certainly don't want that to drag down the spending bill or cause some sort of shutdown. Uh, but if, if there is a deal um, for an omnibus or even a CR con continuing resolution into next year that would not be weighted down by a, by a, um, a, a COVID response uh, package of some size, then they, they, they would agree that it could catch a ride. One of the things that you have taught me in the years that we've known each other, David, is to always look for the irony in what members of Congress do regarding the executive branch and funding the government. This is a great example of this. I will put the words up on the screen here. Um, Republican Senator Mike Braun of Indiana had also blocked the brief stopgap spending bill in an ironic effort to force a vote on legislation that would prevent future shutdowns. But Braun said he acquiesced after a voting agreement on the one-week continuing resolution got too complicated. He added that he probably won't try to force a vote on the issue next week. Holding up, uh, holding up fun, a funding bill because you don't want more shutdowns strikes me as interesting. Do you have any sense that that type of legislation would go anywhere at least anytime soon, because that seems to me to be of great interest, almost as much interest as appropriations to the executive branch. Uh, I, I think that is not going anywhere. That is, I, I said there was a there was a not so funny joke during Vietnam about burning down the village to save it. Um, is this what that's about? I don't quite understand it. You have you you hold up government funding for a bill that would prevent future shutdowns. Uh, you know, I think I think really Congress. A week, two weeks before, um, you know, the Christmas holiday is really struggling to do just the three things that it's got on its plate. It can't even agree to do um, minor legislation on things like um, creating commissions to study future Smithsonian museums. Uh, there's really very not much, not much they can do. New new study out today that they've so far this year, the Congress has enacted only 28 public laws, almost uh, four of which we know about. The big uh, COVID relief bills. So that is a stunning drop off in productivity. Um, Congress is at its most broken of all time. Mike Braun may be well intentioned, but I think that's a, that's a, that's way too ambitious for this time of year. About 45 seconds left, David. Anything on cyber that you're aware of on the Hill, given what we learned over the weekend about the huge cyber breach into at least Treasury and Commerce and maybe other agencies across government? Uh, you know, I think we can expect lots of jawboning and lots of uh, anxiety uh, that that will be bipartisan. Uh, some sort of legislative fix, no. All the cyber uh, legislation that was talked about during the election year, uh, especially if it, it came even close to touching uh, the security of the elections, essentially went nowhere. So, no, I think, I think there, as I say, there'll be a lot of curiosity. Why Treasury? Why, you know, why these two um, agencies? Uh, the census, maybe. Treasury, of course, uh, but why those? I think that will be, there'll be a lot of anxiety about that, but not much action. David Hawkins, thank you very much as always. Thank you. Up next, the four biggest management issues the Biden administration will face. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the transition team can tackle the challenges head on. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The new Biden administration will face four big issues in delivering on what citizens need, according to the Government Accountability Office. It's assembled a transition guide to its work on all four. Kate Sigurud is Chief Operating Officer at GAO. Kate, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the source of this material? Is it a collection of work that the GAO's done in the past? Is there some new work here, or is it a combination of both? Well, thank you, Francis, for having me on. I, I think what you'll see when you go to the transition uh, link on GAO's website is essentially a curated list of GAO's past work that we think will be of greatest interest to the incoming administration and to the new Congress. And maybe I'll just take a step back and tell you how we got here. Uh, the Presidential Transition Act does suggest that the, the, the presidential uh, transition team can reach out to GAO expert staff for assistance. So we've tried to deliver on that um, part of the Presidential Transition Act in two ways. One is by standing up a website that is meant for both the new uh, administration as well as the new Congress that will start in January. And the second is, of course, by contacting the transition team directly and offering briefings or other information from the experts that we have on staff, should that be of interest to them. Uh, we've done that in the past, and those contacts are ongoing um, as we speak. The first of the four that I like to refer to as the big four, Kate, is managing known risk. Managing risk or even acknowledging risk is something that it seems to me is relatively new for the executive branch of the government compared to the private sector. Is that a fair observation, do you think? I would say so in general, in some sectors more than other, yes. What do you think, yeah. what are the items that people should be paying attention to regarding this item? Well, let me just mention a few things. So first of all, the first thing that a visitor to our website will see is that we've talked about three really important risks right now for the government uh, that should be fairly obvious to anyone watching. One is, of course, responding to the coronavirus epidemic. Uh, the second is the, how the federal government can and should respond to economic downturns. And finally, we have a collection of our work uh, around race in America, where we talk about uh, disparities, uh, among other things. So in addressing all of those huge issues, what we need for the government to do is to focus in on good management techniques, and that includes a, a couple of key risks. Uh, the first risk that we focus on specifically has to do with human capital uh, within the federal government. This is an issue that's been on GAO's high-risk list for years, and it focuses on workforce planning. Do we have the people that we need to make the reforms and the administrative um, initiatives that a new administration will want to take on? The number of people and skill gaps. How do we address skill gaps and hire people nimbly to get around those skill gaps? Uh, another very clear risk uh, for the government and managing any uh, effort is having good IT policies, both in acquiring and managing IT, and of course, in responding to the cybersecurity threats. And that must be uppermost in mind today as we learn about the most um, recent uh, hacking um, uh, efforts uh, across the federal agency and, and across really important cybersecurity firms that have been revealed over this past weekend. A third risk that we talk about is fiscal pressures that will be facing the Congress and the administration. Of course, this is something GAO has written about for years. Um, the debt and deficit situation that we face 
that poses major challenges to funding the large entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security, and of course, very important discretionary programs that are currently being used to fight the coronavirus uh, outbreak, the economic downturn, and to defend our country. Uh, our recent work on fiscal pressures talks acknowledges that it's important to continue to provide that support to the economy and to fight the epidemic, but also says that eventually we will need to turn back uh, to looking at these fiscal pressure issues. And then a final risk, risk that I think is really important with regard to all of these topics is working across agencies. Um, so all of the topics I've talked today will need more than one agency to work together to address them and more than one committee of Congress as well. So working effectively across the federal government is a major challenge. Of course, working effectively with the state and local governments is also a major challenge, even as we think about the pandemic with regards to areas like public health and unemployment insurance, among others. Kate, we just have a couple of minutes left, but it strikes me that the opportunity here for the incoming administration and the incoming Congress is to take action that encourages exactly what you just talked about, which is addressing these issues in an enterprise-wide way rather than yes. an agency-by-agency -agency way. Is that, is, is that kind of what you're getting at here by presenting this information in this way? Yes, uh, and that's the reason we, that we talked about these strategic challenges, uh, because we know that the solutions uh, will require uh, the talents of people from across the government, state and local government, and a lot of oversight from Congress. The purpose of, of our website really is to uh, get the ball rolling uh, on congressional oversight and to offer our um, resources and expertise to the new administration. Uh, in the, on the website, we do talk about a couple of other things I might like to highlight that will be available to the new administration and the new Congress early in calendar year 2021. Um, one that's most relevant for what we're talking about today is the biannual update of GAO's uh, high-risk report, which will be issued in late February and will provide updates on many of these risks I've talked about including in the IT and human capital area, uh, and provide updates on the other high-risk issues that we've um, listed uh, over the past several decades. Um, we will also be uh, updating our priority recommendation uh, letters. These are letters that the Controller General um, sends to the heads of major federal agencies talking about those recommendations that GAO has made but have not been implemented that we think are most significant to focus on. Kate, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you, Francis. It's great to be here. Up next, just how secure is your work from home rig? Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to keep yourself and your team safe from cyber attacks in the new year. Don't forget, Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. Welcome back to Cyber Breaches. We learned about over the weekend are a reminder that hackers are finding new ways to threaten federal employees and federal networks. In the new year, agencies can take some clear steps to make sure employee remote offices are more secure. Jim Richberg is Field Chief Information Security Officer at Fortinet, former cyber manager for the Director of National Intelligence. Jim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. There are a couple of concepts that you're writing about that I want to make sure we have a chance to cover. 
One of those, and we see potentially the, the risk of this over the weekend, is telework and targeting the edge. What's that concept of targeting the edge mean, and what does it mean in particular for organizations with a lot of people now that are working remotely? Well, Francis, you're absolutely right. I think that's one of the key trends I think we're going to see carry forward in 2021. We, we of course, had the massive pivot to remote telework that we all implemented in March. Um, the cyber criminals and the nation-state advanced persistent threat, APT actors, fairly quickly followed us. And you're going to see them continue to target the integrity of the remote users' environment, which is not enterprise-grade security solutions that our enterprises are, are protected with when we're working on-premise. And they're also targeting the collaboration platforms, the video conferencing that you and I are doing to hold this interview, and some of the cloud-based productivity tools that agencies have increasingly been using so that the users are not having to do data storage locally. So the threat actors have recognized these are vulnerabilities, these are points of aggregation of data and service, and especially in the case of nation state adversaries where they tend to take what you take, what you characterize as the low and slow approach, play a long game, they've recognized these are things they wanted to exploit. Um, the other thing I would call out in terms of threat activity to look for is ransomware. You know, we tend to think of this from a government perspective as something that's more heavily uh, affected state and local government. But I think it's something that, number one, the federal government has been targeted by all along. We have been able to apply more resources to things like network segmentation, timely offsite backup. But the, from the cyber criminals perspective, there are so many crown jewels in terms of data and services that the federal government holds that it's not a time to be complacent. You're going to look for the federal government to be targeted through its partners, through its remote workforce. You're going to continue to be working from home for at least the first half of the year and through end users because we're increasingly putting federal services online. So that's the second one I would really call out, besides the integrity of the remote user's environment. You're also writing about advancements in social engineering attacks, and that's where ransomware, it strikes me, at least experts like you have told me in the past, that that's where ransomware attacks start. People figure out that the bad guys figure out ways to get essentially uh, a, an innocent actor inside a network to help them get access to the network. What's the state of the art in that, and what is the state of the art in defending against that, Jim? So this is something where artificial intelligence and machine learning, I think on balance, helps the cybersecurity defender more than the attacker. But there are niches like content generation for spear phishing where it preferentially helps the attacker. And I think we're on the cusp of seeing when an intruder not compromises your email identity, they'll not only start sending things as you, they will look at enough of your emails to be able to mimic your syntax and style to each recipient of the email. So it's no longer going to be boilerplate, broken English. It's going to read like it came from Jim or Francis to each person it's coming from. That's well within the realm of the possible for AI right now. So I would look for that to start being leveraged against us now, against that is the fact that if you're the network owner, AI and ML are really big data analytics. And if you own the network, you should have more data at your disposal to allow you to know what's normal and what's abnormal. 
you should be able to save what's abnormal and just strange from what's abnormal and malicious. You ought to be able to stay ahead of the attacker because even spear phishing, they're not perfect. They try and fail before they before they succeed in many cases. So if we can look at the evidence of failure and see that and go, ah, I see what they're trying to do. I'm, I'm going to inoculate patient zero and everybody else in my enterprise at the same time. So I would look for spear phishing to be one of the areas where it's going to help the attacker. But I also think if you look at it strategically, not trying to be complacent, but I think if we if we play our cards right, we're going to be better off as network defenders by smart application of AI and machine learning. We have about a minute left, Jim, and I'll end with the question that I ask cyber experts from time to time. Are we getting any closer to getting ahead of the bad guys? Or are we playing still playing catch up? And are we kind of fated to always play catch up because we don't know what the next threat will be on the landscape? Well, and this is one where, again, I'll, I'll harken back to the AI and machine learning. This is a little bit like what I worked on when I was in the federal government, where I helped put together the Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative. It was about common operating picture, shared situational awareness, and response at machine speed. And we always talk about cyber is hard because of the growing attack surface. But now we increasingly have the capability to say we have commercial technologies we can deploy that cover that attack surface. They are sensors. We have the AI and ML corporately at the back end to make sense of it, and we can drive out policy-driven AI-directed automation to respond to it. So I think we, we will be in a position to say we can finally get ahead of the attacker. I spent a lot of my career in government, in the intelligence community, running collection programs. We were never perfect. We were never cyber ninjas. We relied on the fact that the defense can't be looking everywhere. It can't know the significance if it sees something that's an anomaly. We finally, I think, with AI and ML and this broad approach to cybersecurity, have the potential to turn that around. Jim Richberg, thanks very much for joining me. Great to have you on. Thank you, Francis. I enjoyed this. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. You get a preview of every one of our newscasts. By signing up for our daily program guide, you just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. This Sunday morning, join me for a television exclusive, a conversation with the administrator of the General Services Administration, Emily Murphy. That's coming Sunday morning, December 20th at 10.30 on ABC7. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.